1: Long, beautiful hair. Shining, gleaming, streaming, flaxen, waxen. Just not a bird's nest atop my head. This week, we're looking at the science of hair. We'll learn about the anthropology behind our locks and why they have become more than a means of protecting the scalp. We're also going to dig deep to learn more about one of hair's greatest pests, lice. And in our SAS class, we're going to learn why using a shampoo may be good for your hair, but not necessarily for your body. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you on a journey that's going to change your perception of hair forever. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. For many of us, hair is important. It's one of the first things people notice about us. In a 2010 study in the Social Sciences Journal, hair is the basis for judgments of attractiveness, high or low maintenance, trustworthiness, and even intelligence. What you don't often think about is that hair is really nothing more than proteins oils, minerals, and pigments, and we spend far too much time trying to mold it to look a certain way, if only to convey a particular message to society. But for our first guest, hair is so much more than appearance. It's who we are, and more importantly, who we once were. Her name is Tina Lassisi, and she is a doctoral student at Penn State University And she has looked at our hair as a reflection of our historical roots and also how it reacts to the world around you. We know that hair is one of the most variable traits in humanity. And in anthropology, I imagine that probably means, cool, where does your research fit into the anthropology of hair?
2: So my research is concerned with both the diversity we see in scalp hair and also answering the question of why humans are unique among mammals to have scalp hair while having almost completely naked bodies
1: why do we have naked bodies i've never really understood that
2: (laughs) there are plenty of mammals that have like minimal body hair if not none at all so obviously you could think of the naked mole rat or you can even think of elephants that have pretty minimal covering of hair. Usually that relates to thermoregulation. So keeping a an ideal or optimal temperature for your body. And it's the same thing with humans. So humans evolved to have miniaturized hair follicles all over their body and way more sweat glands because that allows us to thermoregulate a lot better and keep our bodies cool when we are exercising, which would have been really important in the evolutionary environment that we, um, we were in about 2 million years ago. And it turns out that scalp hair has a similar kind of story.
1: When we talk about something that has a property, like a thermoregulatory property, there's a genetic component to it. And I'm curious, when it comes to the differences in hair, many people think it's all about geography. But is mm-hmm. there sort of a geography component and a genetic component? Or is there something that we're all missing?
2: when we're talking about scalp hair like a lot of other human traits that vary among populations and are heritable it's something that is biologically based for example you can have something like income which is heritable through generations but not biological and you can have traits that are heritable and biological. So think of, for example, scalp hair or, to some extent, stature. So when we are talking about hair, there is variation that is attributable to your genetics, and then there's also variation that maps onto geography. Now, variation isn't just cultural. So there are some things that vary geographically but aren't biological. So what you do with your hair, for example, if you tie your hair or you braid it a particular way, that is something that will vary with geography, but it's not biological. So what I'm interested in is the biology. And I look at hair morphology and hair pigmentation.
1: Take us through some of your research so we understand what it is about hair that makes us so different.
2: One of the things that I find most interesting and frustrating about researching hair and and kind of looking at hair variation is that we really aren't good at describing variation. If you think about the way we talk of hair in the English language, we'll describe it as straight, wavy, curly, or sometimes frizzy, but that doesn't really capture the range of variation that we see in this trait because it's continuous. So one of the things that I'm focusing on is developing tools that will help us measure that variation. Because if you can measure some of that variation, you can understand it a little bit better. To give a, a bit of an example of kind of how ridiculous it is the way we talk about hair, imagine if we did the human biology of stature by grouping people into categories of short, medium, and tall. Well, we wouldn't really learn very much about the biology of stature, would we? So that's kind of where we are with hair.
1: So what then are the goals of your research in particular?
2: Well, what I really am trying to do here is to understand the evolution of human scalp hair diversity. So collecting data on hair measurements and also collecting genetic data and then doing an association study. So a genetic association study will allow me to understand what genes underlie variation in human hair morphology. And what I'd like to do with that information is to look into the evolutionary history of human scalp hair. So the cool thing about knowing genes that are involved with a particular trait is that you can then essentially use that as a kind of way of doing Think, think of it as like archaeology on a particular trait the thing about hair is that you have no fossil record of it So instead what you can do is use genetic information to reconstruct the history of that trait And that's exactly what I want to do because once we can do that we can answer some really interesting questions like at what point did human style pair evolve and at what point did it evolve to be a particular morphology is there a signature of natural selection in certain populations or others. And all of this will allow us to tell a really interesting story about why humans evolved to have scalp hair, first of all, and why they evolved to their scalp hair be one of the most variable traits among populations.
1: Is weather really as responsible for bad hair days as we might think? In other words, was Monica right in that Friends episode when she was saying, it's the humidity? (laughs) So
2: that's a, that's an interesting question. Well, as an anthropologist, I guess the first thing I have to say is what we think is bad hair really depends on, first of all, what our cultural standards of beauty are, but also what we're trying to do with our hair. So if you think about Friends, which was one of my favorite shows growing up, the huge thing in the late 90s and the early 2000s was having incredibly sleek, straight hair. So thinking of that uh, Jennifer Aniston look. And yes, if you have any kind of humidity, then that's going to affect your cuticles. So this has everything to do with how your hair fibers respond to what's around them. And your cuticles are really sensitive to water, among other things. So they're going to open up And then that's going to change how your hair fibers interact with each other. But that doesn't necessarily change that much. It's essentially just going to um, change how it interacts with the hair fibers around it, which is a problem that you could completely solve by having a really cool hairstyle like braids. Braids are not affected by humidity.
1: Are we always then going to be susceptible to the idea of bad hair days simply because our societal norms change? are we ever going to be at a point where maybe people will just be okay with our hair just the way it is? Or have we really gotten to a point where if it's not something the Kardashians would approve, then maybe you Mm -hmm. weren't doing it right?
2: I mean, I wish I could say it was just a question of hair, but I think pretty much any trait among humans that is variable, and I'm not just talking about between populations, but between individuals, you're always going to have people trying to compete to be the most attractive, whatever that even means, and judging certain types of appearances as inferior to others. So, unfortunately, my conclusion is that I don't think humans are likely to become completely accepting of everything that we have and everyone else has anytime soon, but I do think that there's a lot of good news for the way people have tried to make positivity about different types of hair recently. There's a lot of natural hair movements that have started to become very popular and talk about how you shouldn't just be worshiping super sleek, straight hair, but you should actually be accepting of very tightly curled hair, for example, and working with the kinds of aesthetics that that can give you. And I think that once people start to adopt styles that require less manipulation and essentially less controlling and trying to forcing your hair into something it's not, the happier they'll be, even if they're never completely satisfied.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: protection, and yes, a place to hide, if you happen to be small enough. As much as we might hate to think about it, there's one creature that has evolved to call our hair home. I'm sorry to make your head itch, but those creatures are lice. These pests have been a problem for young and old alike, and while at one time we had a surefire way to get rid of them, Over the last 20 years, that option has become less trustworthy. Our next guest has been studying head lice and how we may be able to defeat them. He's John Marshall Clark and he is a professor of environmental toxicology and chemistry at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's also the director of the Massachusetts Pesticide Analysis Laboratory. What exactly are head lice?
3: Head lice are an insect arthropods with six legs and most of us know kind of what, what insects look like. Lice, head lice and body lice are two lice that are very highly related and, and they're of a group called sucking lice and lice can uh, suck either, uh plant sap or in our case when they're human head or body lice they feed off our blood by by feeding through our skin.
1: Why do they love our scalps so much then? <laughs>
3: Well, part of the reason is that the human head is a good place for a louse to live and survive. It's a well-protected environment. The head itself usually is covered with hair, and the hair is a good insulator. The head is warm because it has a lot of blood vessels flowing through it, and it's also very humid. Secondly, the head lice tends to live and lay its eggs really close to the scalp, and so you can't really reach down and grab one of these lice. They're, they're rather small, they're about the same size of a grain of rice. And when they're when they're laid flat against the scalp, it's just very difficult to even feel them, less alone to dislodge them and and pull either them or their eggs off of the hair.
1: Take us through the history of treating lice.
3: We've always had lice. This um, it's a very long history of being infested with head lice, and we have had any number of societies that have gotten along with head lice fine. What people used to do when they didn't have good control met- methods were we have lots of societies that would shave their heads or wear wigs or they would use any kind of gooey substance they had, oils or whatever else to be Placed on their heads, and so they would stop there at least if they couldn't rid themselves of lice, they at least could reduce the numbers by some of these physical processes. And most uh, primitive societies all have the same behavior, it's called nitpicking. And actually, at the end of the day, they'll all sit around the campfire and help groom each other. And in places like in tropical rainforests where they don't have a lot of protein available, actually, people for years and centuries have picked these off their heads. and. Actually eaten them as a protein source so for many many years people didn't really pay that much attention to lice well we all of a sudden started becoming more civilized and people started bathing more often and and changing their clothes and so people's attitude towards having head lice changed so what people would do is they would at least initially started using what we call the natural insecticides some of the botanical insecticides produced by plants and one of those compounds is something called uh, pyrethrin it's from a chrysanthemum flower, and so they realized that chemical control could work. And starting about the middle part of the 20th century, we became pretty good at synthesizing compounds that will kill lice. These are things that we call pediculicides, but in fact, what they are is insecticides because they, they kill head lice, which is an insect from about 1950 on we had a group of chemicals that were fairly effective compounds to kill lice and one of these compounds was something called DDT this is a, a chlorinated hydrocarbon that had been around for a little bit of time and it was a very efficient insecticide it, it has a problem being very persistent in the environment. And we also accumulate it in all sorts of important places like our nervous system and reproductive tract and things of that nature. So eventually that compound got banned from use. But what happened is that during this period from about 1940 to about 1970, DDT was used a lot.
1: We've been hearing a lot about resistance. Can you tell us about why this has happened?
3: Where we probably started selecting head lice to become resistant to the compounds like DDT occurred during and right after the Second World War, where we had a huge number of people displaced. And at the end of the war, people were put in resettlement camps all over Asia, all over Europe. And because they were actually afraid that body lice were going to carry one of these bacterial diseases called epidemic typhus they started dusting all these people in these resettlement camps. So literally millions and millions of people got dusted with DDT from about 1945 to 1955. And so there was a huge selection pressure on these lice. It's sort of interesting that the first place where we found uh, resistance was actually in Israel. Uh, We had an awful lot of displaced Jewish people moving from northern Europe into Israel at that time. And those people were all treated with DDT. And so when they came down, that was one of the first places we actually found resistance. So the long or the short of this whole process is that as we've seen with many, many insects and, and insects treated with many, many insecticides, if you treat an organism with one compound that acts in a certain way, eventually that insect's going to come up with some sort of genetic factor that's going to allow it to survive an exposure to something that killed them previously. And, And that whole process is called the evolution of resistance or insecticide resistance. And so what happened was that we had selected these insects with a very common compound called DDT and then we switch compounds and one of the compounds we we switch to were these natural pyrethrins that I mentioned from the chrysanthemum flower and then also some synthetic analogs that people had made from there things called the pyrethroids which is uh, the most common one to use is something called permethrin and that's the active ingredient in the over-the-counter product called Nix And Nix was brought on the market in about, oh, middle part of the late part of 1970s, early 1980s. And because it was an over the counter product and a very effective insecticide to kill head lice, it was very widely used all over the United States and all over the world. And so from literally 1980 to about 2000, almost everybody that had the wherewithal to purchase this compound used it in terms of trying to control head lice. Well, what happened is that the same thing that happened with DDT, uh, these lice became resistant and it actually occurred very, very rapidly, primarily because of the pre-selection with DDT because we know now that the natural pyrethrins, pyrethroid insecticides actually act at the nervous system exactly the same way as DDT does. So they have something we call the same mode of action. And what happened is that in the process of selecting lots and lots of lice on many, many people over a period of 20 or so years, the insect is acquiring these spontaneous mutations, which usually don't really provide any protection, but sometimes they do. And when the insect finds a mutation which protects himself from something like DDT or pyrethroids, then it becomes a resistance mutation. And and that's pretty much what's happened since about 2000, to about you know to present is that because we were using compounds all of which that act the, exactly the same way we ultimately have just selected more and more and more resistant lice and now we're in a situation where the most commonly used pediculocytes like the Nix compound that has permethrin in it Have lost effectiveness. Uh, When that compound was first brought out in the 1980s, it was 100 percent effective. It it stayed effective for about 20 years to about 2000, and then from about 2000 to the present, the decrease in the effectiveness of that compound to the point now it's about 25 percent as effective as it was when it was first put on the market.
1: This sounds awfully familiar to antibiotic resistance. Since about the 1940s, what are the options now?
3: The good news, at least in terms of the development of new pediculocides, is pretty promising right now because we recently, in the last probably 10 years or so, have put on the market a number of different ways in which to go control head lice. And we have two big sort of processes that are going on. One is called physical control, and and this actually is going back to the day when we didn't have chemical control, when people were either picking lice or when societies started making tools one of the really first tools that societies made was something called the hair comb and the hair comb was made totally not to groom people with it was made basically to remove head lice from from people and given a good enough comb and some training and and persistence combing can be an extremely good way to rid yourself and your children from head lice It, it actually works it's just somewhat tedious and the, the other kind of invention that's sort of come up in this, this idea of physical control is something called hot air, a hot air machine. It's called Air uh, Ireal. It's manufactured by a company called Lareda Scientific in Salt Lake City. And this machine's now been on the market for probably over 10 years. And there's a number of clinics, licensed clinics of America that you can go to that have these machines. And again, with a trained technician and a good hot air machine, you can desiccate head lice fairly effectively as i mentioned before the reason why head lice do so well on the head is because it's a very nice warm humid environment and and that's because lice don't really like to be desiccated they they like to be in places where there's a lot of humidity so on the chemical side of the equation we have a number of new products that have come on the market the compounds that are currently available there's a compound called SCLICE. SCLICE has an insecticide in it called ivermectin, a molecule that's been used very, very widely to, as a parasitic worm deworming agent. This SCLICE compound is now available through your physician. It's a, it's a by-prescription only product, so you have to go to your, your doctor to actually get this compound. But to date, this compound is a very effective means to controlling head lice. The second chemical control that's fairly new is a compound called Notroba. And Natroba has an active ingredient in it called something called spinosad. Both the sclice the product and the Natroba product have insecticides, but these insecticides are quite different than we pesticides we've used before because of their selectivity. So for the first time in a long, long time, we have a variety of both physical and chemical uh, effective control processes, all of which interact with novel target sites that haven't been used before. So we're kind of starting with a clean slate and with a little bit of luck, maybe these compounds will outlast the the last group of compounds, which were the, the DDT and the, the pyrethroid molecules that I just talked about.
1: It's Ask Class Time, and today we're going to reveal how washing our hair can lead to problems in other areas of our body. Our guest teacher is Sandra Scottnicki, and she is the founder of Toronto's Bay Dermatology Centre and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. She's also the author of the book, Beyond Soap, The Real Truth About What You Are Doing to Your Skin and How to Fix It for a Beautiful, Healthy Glow. What are the problems with hair that make us seek out shampoo?
4: It's the essence of, you know, why we started to wash and clean so much, you know, around 100 years ago. It, we like to smell nice and we don't like to have oily hair and greasy hair and, uh, and then, you know, pollution and style products, so th- those have to be removed. But I think as a society, we probably wash our hair more than we need to as a general statement.
1: What is happening when we choose a shampoo and, and also a conditioner?
4: The type of detergent that's in your shampoo is, is very important with respect to how it can not only irritate your hair shaft but also irritate your skin and so that's where you get a lot of this sulfate-free business because sulfates are where the sort of first iteration of a non-traditional soap detergent or surfactant if you will and uh, they are quite irritating now we have a lot of different types of surfactants or detergents in shampoo that are plant-based from coconut coco metal propyl would be one other plant base surfactants called the glycosides but the problem with some of these is that they are associated with allergy also irritation and what's interesting about that is that the allergy and the irritation doesn't present on the scalp which is why we have a bit of a problem because it'll present on the skin and people don't equate it with their shampoos
1: when we talk mm-hmm. about shampoos and conditioners especially when you're in the advertising world you don't really talk about the scalp all that much
4: To turn it on its head a little bit, when people have scalp issues and we prescribe shampoos, the backlash we get as dermatologists is, oh, these are crappy for our hair. And I say, well, don't use them as a shampoo. Use it as a scalp treatment. So wash the, if it's niacinol or something for dandruff, let it sit on the scalp, rinse it out, and then wash your hair. Sometimes people look at me kind of strange. I get a lot of that. Guys also don't need to, like, why are you washing your hair every day if you have a brush cut?
1: And the thing that I find interesting, and you've talked about this in your book, is that shampoo and conditioners are not just getting onto your hair and to your scalp. Mm -hmm. They're getting on pretty much every other part of your body. Is that having an unintended effect?
4: Well, I think it is, and I think it's not something that's necessarily widely known, even within you know my specialty. But there was a great study done by a microbiologist group out of San Diego, Dr. Dor- Peter Dorenstein's team, where he looked at, well, he, what he was trying to do. They were trying to assess the microbiome from a sort of a 3D mapping, computerized lens, and they had the patients, the two, it was a man and a woman, not shower or bathe for three days and then they came in and they they wanted to assess the microbiome, but what they found on their skin was residual skin care and mostly hair care products, mostly detergents. So if you think what you're putting on your head and it's washing down the drain, it's also going over your whole body. And the face in particular can be quite reactive in, in the eyelids to the things that are in shampoos, most notably the detergent, surfactants, and then some of the fragrances. And so we see patients with you know recalcitrant eyelid scaling, itching, and, they're, and I'm like, it's your shampoo. And they're looking at me going, well, how can it be my shampoo? And I'm, because it goes over your face.
1: But what about that Johnson & Johnson commercial with the baby with the shampoo and doesn't cause tears? Right. What's the difference? So-
4: well, chemicals on the skin can have several types of reactions, visibly nothing, so you don't see anything, even though it's doing what it's supposed to do, wash or moisturize, but so you have no visible reaction. You can also get irritated, so that's the the no, no irritating the eyes kind of thing, but you um, uh, some chemicals in shampoos can actually give you an allergic reaction. So you'll get scaling and some people just get a crack, like a constant crack right at the corner of their eyelids. Or they'll get rashes on their neck from a true allergy to an ingredient in the shampoo. And they, they don't always equate it with that because they don't assume that it could be from their shampoo.
1: We have so many choices for shampoos. I, I think that it mm-hmm. might be the most diverse in the cosmetic aisles.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. We also know that there's so many different types of formulations. Now, you know that there is going to be a detergent in there. Mm -hmm. There may be something else, fruit extract or, or some kind of oil. But is there something that you would recommend as a formulation for people to use when they're going to shampoo? Or is it really more a personalized cosmetic issue?
4: Some of the pushback I've had with the book is, that like, I don't have any problems, I can use whatever I want, then, then go ahead. Uh, the issue, the more prevalent one is, what happens when you do? People don't know what to use. And fragrance-free things, which are usually what we recommend, are not very coveted. You know, people like things that smell nice. So as far as a formulation, if you're having, let's say sensitive scalp, you have itchy scalp or your dandruff, you want the fewer ingredients, the better. That's one rule of thumb. You should try to avoid sulfate detergents because they're more irritating. Try to get the least amount of fragrance, which is tough. What does that mean? And like, if, you're, if you turn your label b- backward and it's got 50 ingredients, steer away from those. Go to ones that have more like 10. Natural isn't always better. I always say, you know, poison ivy's natural. arsenic's natural. And a lot of natural fragrances are problematic. And then what you can do is trial and error. Which a lot of people do do, but don't go for the natural that's what a lot of it's a knee-jerk response when people have a reaction or they want to have something more sensitive to go more natural and I think that's partly why we have problems with people coming in with sensitive scalp because a lot of the plant-based shampoos are, are quite irritating to the scalp.:
1: I find that there's always this trade-off between health and beauty.: yeah. Is there? a way of having the best of both worlds so that you can have good skin but also not have to worry about bad hair days.
4: That's actually a good point because um, so I learned something a couple of years ago when I was writing my book that there are fragrances that are more problematic and more allergenic than others. So you can have, like in Europe, the regulation is different on fragrances. So there's 26 fragrances, molecules that are more reactive, more allergenic, and now they've extended it, the um, EU has extended it to 113. And, and so you can make a fragrance that doesn't have those, right? Yeah. So you can make, I hate the term hypoallergenic, but you can make, a, I think the better is less, you can make a less problematic fragrance without using those 130 mo- fragrance molecules that have been identified as being problematic. Can't just go to plants because a lot of those extended fragrances now in, that are under the 130 regulated in the in the EU are plant based. So, like a company, if I can use company names like Bioderma, let's say they're French, and said, why is why do you have fragrance in your body wash? Well, because we formulate it without the 132 130 fragrances that are earmarked to be problematic. So you can still get around it. It's just that a lot of this knowledge isn't utilized in north america because there's no restrictions
1: well that's it for this week's Sascast. i hope it offers some help to resolve what many of us find a very hairy situation for curious cast this is the super awesome science show we want to thank everyone who's been listening your support is overwhelming and we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out our show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.